Thank you, Gordon and Barbara, for our music this morning. Welcome to those of you joining us on live stream. We are back in the book of Galatians this morning, chapter 3, toward the end of the chapter, verse 19 to 22 today. We're kind of concluding, actually, chapter 3, I think, because the way I look at it from verse 23 to 29 fits better with chapter 4 than chapter 3. Of course, the chapter divisions are not inspired, but uh, we have them in nice uh, paragraphs like this. And so uh, we're going to go from 19 to 22. Let me give you kind of a conclusion of what we have learned in chapter 3. In verses 6 through 9, we learned that Abraham was justified by faith. And so all the way back to Abraham, before the law was ever given, uh, men were justified by faith, of course, always have been. And Abraham is a great example of that. Well, in verses 10 through 14, we learn that we are justified by faith, by the same kind of faith that Abraham had. When we believe what God has instructed us in, and that is to receive Jesus Christ as our Savior, we do that by faith. And then in verses 15 to 18, we learn that God's covenant with Abraham, his promises to Abraham, cannot be annulled. They are everlasting. They are one way, unconditional, and they are given, and those promises are still there, and that's why you and I are still saved by faith, because those kind of promises are forever. So today we'll look at 19 through 22, and basically what Paul's going to follow up and say is, but the covenant with Moses has been annulled. That one has been brought to an end. It was, it was a conditional covenant, and uh, so it was faulty in many ways, and that's why I've titled this, the message this morning to the failure of the law. Now, you've got to put yourself in Paul's shoes or the Jews of the first century and understand what was happening here. Even Paul himself, uh, when he was Saul of Tarsus, was a Pharisee of a Pharisee. He, had, he was zealous for the law. He persecuted anyone who uh, spoke wrongly of the law. So he was very zealous of that, and then he was converted to Christ. But you have to understand, these Jews lived under the law for 1,400 years. It was everything they knew. Uh, Moses, David, Elijah and Elisha, all of them lived under the law and tried the best they could to keep it. 1,400 years they did this. Well, this understand that the Old Testament, the law is inspired. No one is saying the fact that it's annulled, that it shouldn't be in the Bible. Uh, all of it is inspired, these words from Moses as he wrote them down. So, so the law was their tradition. It, it was their heritage. They were patriotic to it. Uh, their inheritance was in the law. Uh, this was all important to them. You know, we say in, in America that, that we are proud that our Constitution has lasted over 200 years. You know, that uh, we're this wonderful democracy that has lasted longer than any other. And that's true, and we, we ought to be. But imagine 1,400 years that this law had been around. They, they loved this, and they were very proud of it. And now this little Jewish fellow who says he had some experience uh, with uh, Jesus is saying now it all needs to stop and you don't need to practice that way anymore? 
I mean, that, that was pretty earth-shaking when you think about that, that that's what happened. Now, think about it this way. The law was one of five generations, or, or excuse me, dispensations, I should say, that went from creation up to that time. Even if we put creation at 4,000 B.C., the earliest we would put it, 4,000 B.C. to 1,400 B.C., means that there were 2,600 years before the law that no one lived under the law. It, it didn't even exist, of course. Abraham uh, lived during that time, and uh, Noah lived during that time, and many great men uh, lived before the law anyway, without the law. And Abraham, in that dispensation of promise, we call it, only lasted about 500 years, for, you know, from Abraham down to Joseph. And that 500 years was more important than the law of Moses that lasted 1,400 years. It was a promise given to him that is still good, still will be fulfilled in the millennial kingdom of, of Christ. They will again enjoy the promises given to Abraham. And so here is Paul trying to explain all of this. So he comes to verse 19 uh, here in Galatians chapter 3. And he asks a question that's already on their mind. Well, then what's the purpose of the law? <laughs> Why did we have it? What did it do for us? What, you know, uh, what did it accomplish if you're saying that it wasn't here beforehand and now it should be gone again? Did it replace the, the Abrahamic covenant? Some thought that way. No. Did it expand the Abrahamic covenant so that now you keep them both? No. In fact, Paul is going to tell us it was a temporary necessity. We needed it for a while to accomplish just certain things. But other than that, it failed even in those things, and it fails uh, today if we try to keep it. The, the promise to Abraham came in about 2000 B.C. or thereabouts when he lived, and then that promise is fulfilled when the seed of Christ, uh, or seed of Abraham comes, who is Christ himself. And so in between those two, God gave the law for certain reasons, but once the promise to Abraham is fulfilled, that is the coming of Christ, we learned that back in the previous verses, uh, then we have no need for the law any longer. So follow if, uh, with me, if you will, in these uh, thoughts that I have here. First of all, that purpose of the law that he's talking about in verse 19. What purpose then does the law serve? And I've got two thoughts here. As a matter of fact, these come from two different words in the text. You see the word added and you see the word till or until. It was added because of sin and it was until the seed should come. Pretty simple. As a matter of fact, it has a definite beginning and a definite ending. That's Paul's point here. And so when he says uh, it was added, meaning there, it was not there beforehand, and now God adds it again. There were certain things that, that no one practiced before the law. For example, no one practiced the Passover before the law was given, even though uh, they, they had the actual Passover of the death angel in, in Egypt while they were still there, but it was made a law at Sinai, and then they had to keep it. 
No one kept the sa a Sabbath day before the law other than God. God rested on the sixth day, but it was never given as a commandment to people before the law. As a matter of fact, in Exodus 16:29, as they came out of Egypt and they were headed toward Sinai, the Lord has given you the Sabbath, he says to Israel. And in Exodus 31, 16, therefore the children of Israel shall keep the Sabbath. It is a sign between me and the children of Israel. And so there were many things under the law that were not practiced beforehand, and we don't have to practice afterhand. Just an example of that. Now, what is the purpose of the law? It was added because of sin, he says. It was added because of transgressions. Now, the first weakness of the law is, of course, that it cannot save. And we saw that uh, back up in verse six, uh, chapter 2, verse 16, what I call the proposition of the whole book. Uh, no one is saved by keeping, trying to keep the, the law of Moses. But I'll tell you what it can do. It can convict of sin. And that's why it was added. Not to save anybody, because everyone is saved by faith who is saved. But conviction of sin, yes. Try to keep the law. How many of you have ever kept the law perfectly? No hand went up in this room. Oh, put mine down too. Because, of course, we can't. So what has the law done for us? It's convicted us of sin. We know that we are sinners. As a matter of fact, let me remind you of these verses if you want to write them down. All from the book of Romans, by the way. I know you've studied all these well in Sunday school class, but Romans 3.19. We know that whatever the law says, it says to those who are under the law that every mouth may be stopped and all the world become guilty before God. Therefore, by the deeds of the law shall no flesh be justified in his sight, for by the deeds of the law is the knowledge of sin. Romans 4.15, because the law brings about wrath. For where there is no law, there is no transgression. You understand what he just said there? If there's no law, then nothing's wrong. We face that crisis in our country right now, and many countries do, where we can have riots all summer long and burn half the country down, but if no one stops and no one says, uh, no one's prosecuted for it, nothing's wrong, then uh, where there is no law, there's no transgression either, is there? We can have a border, but if we don't enforce the, the law there, then there's no transgression. No one did anything wrong. And so what he's saying is, without the law of Moses, how do you know whether you did anything wrong before God? We need that kind of law. Robert Gromacki made, uh, or, or I was going to finish, uh, Romans 5.13 and Romans 5.20. Until the law, sin was in the world, but sin is not imputed to you without law. And verse 20, moreover, the law entered that the offense might abound. And praise the Lord, where sin abounded, grace did much more abound. Robert Gromacki in his commentary said this about us. In a sense... Sinful man is not as bad as he could be in practice. I mean, you're all pretty good people. I know, I know you pretty well. None of you are just terrible, terrible people. Some of you might come close, but you're not, you're not there yet. We're, all, we're not as bad as we could be if we set out to be that bad. But then he said, although man 
is as bad off as he can be in his position before God. All of sin that comes short of the glory of God. You can't get any worse than that. We are sinners that deserve uh, eternity in hell. You can't get any worse than that. Someone I was reading described the law as a stick, a stick that beats you. And he was talking about, uh, you know, if you, uh, if you hit an animal that isn't doing anything, he may turn on you at that point. I thought of a story, and I thought, well, I'm going to take time to tell this because it reminded me of it. When I, when I was a boy, I had a friend named Tony. Tony Wolf was his name. And we were fishing buddies, we, and we did a lot of stuff together. Matter of fact, he had one of these strange lawns at his house where if you went out and watered the lawn in the evening, you could come back in the morning and the night crawlers were lying all over the, all over the ground. And we just pick them up and go fishing, you know, so uh, he was a good fishing buddy. But somewhere along the line, Tony and I thought we ought to buy some traps and set traps and we read somewhere that there were mink in the area, this is back in Ohio, in the woods, and, and a mink pelt was worth like 50 bucks or something like that. That was a lot of money for us. So I, I talked my dad into giving me $50 to buy my share of the traps and said, I can pay you back the first time I trap a mink, you know, so big dreams. Well, I, I set my traps in woods behind our house, and Tony set his traps in woods behind his house. So... Tony's going out to check his traps one day. Got big hopes. He comes over this rise and he looks and he sees in the trap something black and white. <laughs> and there's a skunk in the trap. It's not dead. He's alive. He's not too happy, but he's there. And Tony standing there as a kid saying, now what do I do? He didn't have a gun, of course, in those days. He didn't carry guns around. Didn't have a gun. He can't leave it there. He's got to do something with it. So he gets the bright idea of finding a big old stick in the woods. And he takes off after that skunk. And skunk can't get away, of course. And Tony beats the skunk to death with a stick. Now, also, he paid the price for doing that because the skunk fought back <laughs> in the way skunks fight back. So Tony, after he had killed this skunk, he comes home to his mom. His mom won't let him in the house, makes him strip outside, hoses him down with the hose, and burns the clothes. <laughs> I guess my point is, if I have a point here, when the law takes its stick to us, all kinds of stinky stuff comes out of us because we're sinners. And that's what the law does to us. So I thought that was a good illustration that the law does that to us. Listen, folks, the message of our sinfulness, the preaching of repentance, the conviction of sin, the, the whole repentance process is never any fun, is it? It wasn't fun when you got saved. It made you angry. It, it made you come up with excuses. It, it exposed all of your sin and all that you are until finally... Though sin abounded, grace did much more abound, and God's grace covered it. Praise the Lord for that. So the law is added because of sin until. So the law had a beginning, and that was Mount Sinai uh, in around 1400 uh, B.C., and it lasted until, so there's a definite ending. And what is that? Till the seed should come. As a matter of fact, we learned in verse 16 
uh, in last week's uh, uh, message that that seed is Jesus Christ. When Jesus Christ came, who is the seed of Abraham, then Paul is saying that's the end of the law. The law ended at that point. Look up at verse 24 of chapter 3 where we are. Notice that there it's described as a tutor. Therefore, the law was our tutor to bring us to Christ, that we might be justified by faith. But after faith has come, we are no longer under a tutor. For you are all sons of God through faith in Christ Jesus. And so we don't need that tutor anymore. Let me remind you of these thoughts in the New Testament. John 1.17, the law was given, given through Moses, but grace and truth came by Jesus Christ. Ephesians 2.15 says that God having abolished, or Jesus having abolished in his flesh the enmity, that is the law of commandments contained in ordinances. He abolished it so as to create in himself one new man from two making peace. When the writer of Hebrews is describing the new covenant and the old or the new testament and the old it's he's contrasting what became what came before christ which was the law the old testament and what came after which is the new testament or the new covenant so he says it this way in hebrews 8 13 in that he says a new covenant he has made the first that would be the law of moses obsolete now, what is becoming obsolete and growing old is ready to vanish away, he says. And Hebrews 10, 9, then he said, Behold, I have come to do your will, O God. He takes away the first that he may establish the second. And so the law is obsolete at this point. It's taken away. We don't need it at this point. Let me, let me make a, a couple statements here, though, about uh, some caveats, I guess I would call them, about the Old Testament and about the law. Number one, it's Scripture, as I said before. Moses wrote it. We wouldn't even know anything about all the time before the law, starting with Adam and then Noah and, and, and Abraham. We wouldn't know that, except Moses wrote it, and he wrote it under inspiration. It's part of our Scripture. We defend it. When Paul said all Scripture is given by inspiration of God, he's probably referring to the Old Testament. Uh, it's given by inspiration. And what is it? It's profitable for doctrine, reproof, for correction, instruction, and righteousness. So Paul would be the last one, because he said that to Timothy. He'd be the last one to say, oh, the law is of no use, that we don't use it. Of course we do. Some of the New Testament laws were also Old Testament laws. Not all of them, but some. As a matter of fact, nine out of ten of the Ten Commandments are restated in the New Testament as our obligation. For example, isn't cursing God still a sin in the New Testament? And doesn't the New Testament say that? Isn't, isn't adultery still sin in the New Testament? And the New Testament says that? Lying, disobedience, those kinds of things? Yes, it is. But some Old Testament laws were not reinstated in the new. I gave you the example before of the Sabbath. The Sabbath did not exist before the law, and it's not restated anywhere in the New Testament that we're supposed to keep it. Now, it's at this point that we disagree with a lot of our friends, brothers, 
uh, who think that uh, all of the law is still effective today and we have to keep it. From their point of view, they look at it like this. All of the law is still in effect unless the New Testament says, don't do this one. But we say, all of the law stopped. The whole thing stopped, except that Jesus in the New Testament says, now keep doing this and keep doing this one. And so they're restated in the New Testament. And that's the way we look at it. And so, as I said, the, uh, the Sabbath is a good example. We, we are not obligated to keep the Sabbath. Some, of course, keep a Saturday Sabbath, the Seventh-day Adventists do. There have been Seventh-day Baptists, by the way, so it's in our history as well, that say you have to keep all of those Sabbath laws during that day. Nowhere does the New Testament tell us that. Nowhere. And uh, some people uh, then make the Sabbath a Sunday and so the reformers did this. They understood the difference, some difference between law and grace. So what they did was say, well, Sundays become the Christian Sabbath. Nowhere does the New Testament say that. So uh, sorry, Eric Little, Eric Little in the, in the chariots of fire, uh, you know, he's a good Jewish boy. He's trying to uh, keep the Sabbath and keep the law. But you don't have to. And so that's our position in the New Testament. Now, Jesus said, I am not come to destroy the law. What he meant was, I've not destroyed the purpose for the law. And what is the purpose for the law? To show you that you're a sinner. Was the purpose for the law ever to save anyone? No. I've come not to destroy that purpose for the law, but rather to fulfill every righteous demand that the law made of a human being. And in Christ Jesus, the law was totally, completely fulfilled in him so that he can become our Savior. So, first point, purpose of the law, because of sin. It was added, it was also ended. Second thing, and we, we still stay in verse 19 through 20, and that is uh, about the giving of the law. Interesting here. Right after, right in the middle of verse 19, it was appointed, it was appointed, you might have the word ordained, through angels by the hand of a mediator. It brings in this idea of mediators. And he says, now a mediator does not mediate for one person. A mediator needs two people. He's a go-between, between two people. But God doesn't need a mediator. God is one. And basically, folks, what he's saying is the Abrahamic covenant was given by God alone. He didn't need a mediator for that. But the law of Moses needed all kinds of mediators. It needs go-betweens. Moses was a mediator. The angels were mediators. Every prophet, priest, and king in the Old Testament was a mediator. Isn't it interesting that he mentions angels here? So if you were curious, like I have been always about the mention of these angels. Let me remind you of this, that the angels are mediators also. They're, they're messengers. They're servants of God. They come and do errands for God. And so they've always been those mediators. Well, evidently the angels were highly involved in the giving of the law. Kind of an interesting thing in the scripture. Psalm 68, 17 says the chariots of God are 20,000, even thousands of thousands. We know that's the 
un, the innumerable number of angels. The Lord is among them in Sinai, in the holy place. Deuteronomy 33.2, the Lord came from Sinai and dawned on them from Seir and shone forth from Mount Paran. He came forth with ten thousands of saints, they're called that here, from his right hand came fiery law from them. Two New Testament verses, Acts 7.53 says, who received the law by the direction of angels and have not kept it. The Israel received the law by the direction of angels. And in Hebrews 2.2, if the word spoken through angels was steadfast and every transgression and disobedience received just reward, how shall we escape? if we neglect so great salvation. So these angels were involved as mediators, but so was Moses. God spoke to Moses on Mount Sinai. He spoke to the people. A prophet, God would speak to a prophet. The prophet would speak to the people. The priest was where you as a person went to the priest. He spoke to God. Always mediators. Even a king was supposed to be a mediator for the whole, for the whole country. So a couple things are, are what, we're, we're, what I think Paul is telling us here about mediators is, number one, they're all fallible. Now, maybe not the angels, but they, had, they didn't have a, a will of their own. They did exactly what God wanted them to do. But prophets, priests, and kings were all fallible. So all you do, fallible. All you got to do is read the Old Testament and find out every one of them had problems. Even the good ones had problems. Mediators are temporary, and they die like the whole priesthood. So one dies, a son takes his place. He dies, another son takes his place. And that's one of the problems. And they mediated a law which cannot save. So the fact is, the mediators tried to mediate, but they didn't do a very good job of it. And that's what he's saying here. So notice that statement in verse 20, again, if you will. Now, a mediator does not mediate for one only. He you know, a mediator is between two people. <laughs> One writer on this verse said, there's been about 250 interpretations of verse 20. <laughs> what does this mean? Well, I think it basically the answer is this. The Abrahamic covenant was a one-way covenant, an unconditional one-way covenant. He didn't even walk through the animals that were, that were split apart with Abraham, did he? He walked alone. He walked through it himself. He didn't need a mediator. Nobody stood between God and Abraham. He just gave it. And no one will fulfill it except Abraham and God. And so it's a one-way thing. But the mosaic is always a two-way thing. It's always, I'll do my part, but you have to do your part. And a mediator is, well, help him do this. Well, he needs this. And there's always somebody in between, fallible mediators. But here, I think, is the point when he says God is one that we've learned from the book of, of Galatians that we need to remember. Jesus Christ was the promised seed of Abraham, right? Jesus Christ is a God and he's a man. When he is incarnated and when he comes, holy God, holy man. Perfect, holy God, sinless, perfect man. And what does that mean? It means he can do both things himself. 
He needs no mediator. He is the mediator. He, he is God and he's man all in one, rolled into one. And that's why he says, but, but God is one and doesn't need anyone else but himself. So these verses you know very well. 1 Timothy 2.5, there is one mediator between man and God, the what? Man, Christ Jesus, see? He was the God-man who is the mediator for us. Hebrews again 8.6 says, now he has obtained a more excellent ministry inasmuch as he is also mediator of a better covenant or better testament, which was established on better principles. And Hebrews 9.15, and for this reason he is the mediator of the new covenant by means of death for the redemption of the transgressions of the first covenant that those who are called may receive the promise of eternal inheritance. And so if you're going to come to God, you come through Jesus Christ and you need, you need no mediator. He needs no mediator. He is it. He is your savior. What a great thought and promise that is. My thought went back, however, to Job. Now in the book of Job, 932 and verses following. In the book of Job, Job is before the law, of course. He's back in the days of Abraham. And you know Job's struggles. And here his accusers accusing him of being a sinner himself. I mean, why would, why would God punish someone like what God is doing to Job? He's not a sinner. And he's saying, well, miserable comforters are you all, you know, thanks a lot. I... I need somebody to plead my case. Here's what he said in Job 9.32. For he, and he's talking about God here, he is not a man as I am that I may answer him and that we should go to court together. And then he says this, nor is there any mediator between us. The old version has the word daysman there. Neither is there any daysman. Every Bible I've ever had has a footnote there and footnotes it as the word umpire. Daysman means umpire. What does an umpire do? He mediates what this team thinks is right and what this team thinks is right. And he says, no, this is what's going to be. Neither is there a daysman or an umpire, a mediator between us who may lay his hand on us both because then I would fear, or I would not fear him, but it is not so with me. I don't have one. And so a mediator is needed, and Jesus Christ is our mediator. So the, the second weakness of the law is that it had mediators and it couldn't mediate. It couldn't bring you to God. Those mediators themselves were fallible, and they failed. And for that reason, uh, the, the law does not need to continue, of course, after Jesus came. So a third thought here in our text, and really it's the third weakness of the law in 21 and 22. And I will say that the weakness of the law is human beings. <laughs> the weakness of the law is we have to do our part and we can't. Or I say we, the Jewish people, the, anyone who lived under the law, they can't. And for three reasons, I say Man is weak, can't keep the law. Man is lifeless, there's no life in him. And not only that, we're confined within this law and trapped and condemned, if that's all there is. So notice in verse 21, is the law then against the promises of God? 
certainly not, or you might have, God forbid, I like that kind of expression, God forbid. The law, God gave the law. It sounds almost, when we, when we are reading these passages, that, that the law is kind of against God, or God doesn't like the law. But let me, let me uh, read a couple verses to you in Romans 7, 7 and 8. What shall we say then? Is the law sin? God forbid. Certainly not. God, God dictated the law at Sinai. The only perfect government that's ever been given is the law. It's not, it's not God that's imperfect, or even the law for that matter. It's you and me. We are the imperfect ones. So is the law sin? God forbid. On the contrary, I would not have known sin except through the law. Therefore, the law is holy and the commandment holy, just, and good. A striking thing to be said, isn't it? Man is the problem. No one could keep it. That's the problem with the law. So how can anybody be saved? How can anybody get to heaven? How could anybody have eternal life through the law? No one could. In Romans 3.19, or excuse me, 7.13, Paul says it this way. Has then what is good become death to me? Well, he again says, certainly not, or God forbid, but sin, that it might appear sin, was producing death in me through what is good, so that sin, through the commandment, might become exceedingly sinful. We have sin in us when even when the Word of God comes to you or me, when the Word of God comes to us, what does it do? It shows our sin. It shows what is inside us. It shows what our heart is. It shows what our nature is. We're sinners. And the law can do that, of course, as it said. It can condemn. It just can't go any farther than that. The law had no justification in it, to use a New Testament word. It could not make you justified before God. Faith can, but the law never could. As a matter of fact, the law can't sanctify either. Though there were good men who practiced the law and tried to keep it, Moses to begin with, uh, and Joshua, and excuse me, men like that, tried to do it, but without Jesus Christ, who is our sanctification, without the Holy Spirit dwelling in you and and leading you to sanctification, it isn't going to happen. So man was weak, and that was the weakness of the law. Secondly, man is lifeless. So in verse 21, is the law then uh, against the promises of God? Certainly not. For if, by the way, this is a hypothetical statement, and notice, notice the if and the could have and the would have in, the, in these statements. If there had been a law given which could have given life, truly righteousness would have been by the law. But it didn't so, and that's not the way it was. As a matter of fact, here, Romans 8, 3 and 4, what the law could not do in that it was weak through the flesh, through human beings, God did by sending his Son in the likeness of sinful flesh on account of sin, he condemned sin in the flesh. Praise the Lord for the Lord Jesus Christ. That the righteous requirement of the law 
might be fulfilled in us. Let me go back to that. Your sanctification with the Holy Spirit in you and Jesus Christ as your mediator through Jesus Christ, you can do things that no one could do under the law. Not that you are perfect either, but in Jesus Christ, we are perfect. In Jesus Christ, God sees uh, us as he sees Christ. That the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who do not walk according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. So, a blessing. Now, life itself is not in us. We could not live the, the righteous demands of the law, but Christ is in us. And he is our life. And he enables us to do it. Now, one last thought. We're told here that man is confined. You might have the word concluded in verse 22, but the scripture has confined all in sin or concluded all in sin. And then a very nice preposition, that. Why is that? That the promise by faith in Jesus Christ might be given to you who believe. Suncleo is the word confined here. It, and the reason it's translated in the newer version con, confined is it means to lock them up, to throw away the key, to enclose, to sentence, or to confine, to imprison, we might say. So, you know, confined uh, is a good word. A criminal gets confined uh, in prison. And why is that? Because we're confined in the law. The law has condemned us with no way out, folks. It has condemned you and me and everyone else in the world who's ever lived, and there's nothing you can do about it. The key's been thrown away, if you only have the law, of course. So Romans 3.19, now we know that whatever the law says, it says to those who are under the law that every mouse may be stopped, and all the world may become guilty before God. All the world, every human being. Even though maybe only the Jews and a few other people lived under the law, no one in this world who ever walked on this earth could keep the law. Confined, <laughs> concluded, all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. But notice this last preposition, that. Why is all of that? so that you have a way out. I have the keys of hell and of death, Jesus said to John on Patmos, that the promise by faith, see, you say, well, I, I'm a sinner. I can't keep the law. The Bible even says so. That's right. But you can exercise faith. You can come to Jesus Christ and say, you be my righteousness. <laughs> you be my salvation. You be my good work. And he'll save you. And so, again, we know that the law says every mouth is stopped, but you can come to him by faith. So what is Paul's overall point here? Abraham was saved by faith, the only way you can be saved. The law, all it could do was condemn you, and when the seed came, who is Jesus Christ, now all of us can believe. All of us can have eternal life because it is through faith and not by the keeping of the law. Ephesians 2.12, at that time you were without Christ, being aliens from the commonwealth of Israel, strangers from the covenants of promise, 
having no hope without God in the world. But now, in Christ Jesus, you who were once far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ, having abolished in his flesh the enmity that is the law of commandments. He did that for you and me. So we, we have learned these things. The purpose of the law was to convict of sin, but it can't save you. The giving of the law needed a mediator, but the mediators can't mediate. The weakness of the law is that uh, it can't save. It, it's perfect, but man is not perfect, and it needs man in a two-sided covenant, and we can't keep the law. So, folks, Paul is drilling home with that last statement and all of these statements. So Jesus Christ can save you by his grace. He can be your savior. He can be your substitute. He can be your propitiation. He can be your advocate. He can be the assurance of your salvation. He is the gift that you receive by faith, if you will. What a great message that is that Paul tells us. Uh, we understand the purpose of the law. We understand why it's in the Bible where it is. We understand what Jesus Christ has done for us. We understand how to get to God and heaven, and that is through Jesus Christ himself. Stand with, with me, if you will. Let's stand and think about these things, and we sing a song of invitation here in our service. Uh, so let's go to the Lord in prayer, and then we'll sing our song. Let's pray together. Now, Father, uh, Every time we hear, on the one hand, how sinful we are, we look at ourselves and say how true that is. And yet, on the other hand, we hear how righteous Jesus Christ was, the God-man, who could be the only needed mediator between us and God. And, Father, we can come to him by faith, not by our own good works, and be justified before you. So, Father, we praise you and thank you for that. That is the gospel we understand. And so, Father, bless it today. These words that we have read and those who have heard or wherever this gospel is preached and those who need to hear, may there be salvation by God's grace today. So, Father, bless us, too, as we think about these things. May, may the word of God not be in word only, but in power and the Holy Spirit and in much assurance for those who need assurance today. So bless in this as we sing the song, move us in the way that we need, and we'll thank you for it in Jesus' name. Amen. Gordon's going to come and lead us in the song. Our invitation is always open as we sing. I'm here at the front, or as, we're, uh, as we close and others are leaving, uh, I'm still here. If you have a need, you come and see me. So Gordon, come and lead us in the song.